sitting this morning. My name is Steve Adams. I'm the pastor here at Eastgate Bible Church. If you're a regular here, my name hasn't changed. I, I still am Steve at Eastgate. Now, there's one thing, when you have a Bible reading like that, I can tell you straight now, I'm going to disappoint someone. Because someone just heard Genesis 1 read and thought, Ripper, I want to hear a sermon on Genesis 1, and it's not actually what we're doing this morning. So if you got all excited and you thought you were going to get a Genesis 1 sermon explaining all the details of Genesis chapter 1, you may be disappointed. Um, but hopefully you're not overall disappointed. What we're about to do is we're beginning a new series. It's going to be a six-part series looking at the big picture overview of what is God's plan of redemption uh, from Genesis uh, through to Revelation. So we had the reading from Genesis chapter 1 uh, because that's um, sort of where we're beginning this morning. So sorry if I disappointed, but we'll get to it one day. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that uh, we have your word. We thank you that we are... Uh, can be called your beloved children. Not because we can achieve some merit or some standard of of ethics or living, but solely upon uh, the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Uh, Lord, we thank you that nothing in this world happens um, just as a random sort of a chance. But Lord, even before the foundation of the world, you had a a plan uh, to call a people to yourself. Uh, to enjoy the blessing of being in relationship with you. And Lord, as we see as that uh, plan unfolds, as we go through uh, this series over the next six weeks, uh, Lord, we pray that it might encourage us to, uh, to understand how your word fits together, uh, that we might see the, the centrality uh, of Jesus Christ, and Lord, we might see the hope, uh, knowing that there is a sure and certain future. Uh, so Lord, we pray that you would, you would encourage us and equip us and help us to, uh, to see Jesus and love Jesus more clearly through our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Is anyone here into jigsaw puzzles? No, I'm not going to get you to raise your hand. Well, Hunley, was that a nomination or was that just getting comfortable? No. Imagine if you went down to a second-hand store and you bought a jigsaw puzzle, but you haven't got the box. Now, what are some of the troubles you think you're going to run into? The box tells you what you're making. It gives you the big picture. You know what you're aiming for. And without it, you've got no idea what each of the little bits are going to do. Now, I imagine at the beginning, you're probably going to have little sections. You're going to have this little section. You're like, oh, this looks like a house. I'll put this bit, all these little housey bits together. Over here, you might have a tree that you've constructed. But without the big picture, you don't know how all of these things fit together. It's a lot easier when you've got a box. Because when you've got a box, you know that everything in it somehow contributes to that one big picture. And you see how each of those elements individually, how they all fit together to contribute to that one big picture. Now, I think that illustration, I think, comes from Vaughan Roberts' book, God's Big Picture. And if you've read that or um, Gospel in Kingdom, you'll see that what we're looking at over these next six weeks follows a, a similar sort of structure, a similar sort of outlook. But the Bible's very much like that idea, is that there is one unified message of the Bible. It's not like a, a collection of disjointed stories that don't connect in any way and that don't have a natural progression from start to finish. Now, in your early days when you're a Christian, you start to read the Bible, you, you don't understand some bits, you read some bits and you go, okay, there's this Garden Eden bit, there's the bit where they weren't real good, or there's, these, there's these bits where they're 
there's an exodus, and you don't quite understand how all of these bits fit together. But when you understand that there is a good plan, when God has a plan of, of redemption from beginning to end, and they all actually fit together to serve that glorious plan, then once you start to see the bigger picture, which is what we're going to look at over the next six weeks, you start to understand how all the individual smaller pieces, how they fit together and how you rightly understand them. Now, although the Bible is 66 books, probably roughly around 40 authors over 1,500 to 2,000 years' time to actually write all the material, there is one story from start to finish. It is God's story. It's not a collection of disconnected or unrelated writings, nor is it a series of failed attempts to try and achieve that purpose. Now, sometimes people will read through the Bible, they think, oh, gee, God created stuff, there's Adam and Eve, oh, that didn't work. Maybe give the Ten Commandments as a plan B, oh, that didn't work. Send Jesus as a plan C. They were not failures and second and third attempts at trying to get it right. God had one plan for all eternity, even before the foundation of the world. And that plan and his purposes progressively get revealed as we work our way through the Bible. We see some of this and we looked at this last week in Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 4 it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So even before the world existed, God had a plan to choose people and to choose people in Christ. Now we only need to be chosen in Christ if his death and resurrection and his means of salvation were part of a plan even before the world existed. And then in verses 9 and 10, it says, Make known to the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, so he has a purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God had a plan before the world was created, had a plan and a purpose to unite all things in Christ. So Jesus is actually at the very centre of God's plan. It was not a plan B or a plan C, but he was the very centre of God's plan right from the very beginning. Now, there's a sense to which I'm a little bit disappointed about bringing this series. Because I had planned on doing this for years ago, even when I was down at the other church in Victoria, and I never got around to doing it. But as my prayers, we look through these six sessions, it'll help us to understand the Bible. That'll help us to see the centrality of Jesus and how Jesus helps us to understand the, the message of the whole Bible. We're going to look at God's united plan all the way from Genesis to Revelation. If you've read Gospel and Kingdom or According to Plan or God's Big Picture, they present this idea that the story of God is a story about the kingdom of God from beginning to end. So here's an outline of kind of where we're going to head this morning. What is a kingdom? What does the kingdom of God look like? going to do a very flash overview of kind of how that kind of fits together, start to finish, and then wrap it all up together. So firstly, what is a kingdom? Now, it's all good and well to say that there's a basic structure of the kingdom of God in the Bible from beginning to end, but then when you read through your Bible, you think the word kingdom doesn't appear that frequently in the Bible. I think, Steve, you're getting a bit overexcited. Sometimes you do get a bit overexcited. But what is a kingdom? What are some of the elements you need in order to have a kingdom? You need to have a ruler, kind of helps to have a king for, it to, for there to be a kingdom. 
And for there to be a kingdom, that, that ruler has to, has to have authority or rule over a certain uh, group of people. And the kingdom is always, always has like some geographical bounds. So there's a king who rules over people in a place. And as we look through and we walk our way through the Bible, they're going to be the, the defining things that we look at. That there is, a, there is a people of God under his rule, enjoying his blessing in his place. So whether or not the terminology is used, kingdom comes up throughout the whole Bible. When we look right from the beginning, what does the kingdom look like? When we look at Genesis, we just read from Genesis chapter 1. The beginning of the Bible, you see an idealistic picture of a kingdom where God is ruling over his people. There is blessing in being and living underneath his rule. Life was pretty good when his people were living under his rule. We get to the end of the Bible in Revelation, the last couple of chapters, you see a new heavens, a new earth, where the people of God are living in perfect relationship with God and enjoying the blessing of living under his rule. But as we begin in Genesis, we see a God who creates all things, which by nature makes him the rightful owner and ruler of all things, which includes Adam and Eve, the first, first of mankind to be created. And we see God's kingdom ideal. You've got two people living in perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another, and perfect relationship with the created order in which they live in. Matter of fact, it's the only time in all history when there was no arguments, no pain, no suffering. And strangely enough, people think life's better when God's not around. Doesn't make much sense, does it? Because under God's rule, despite the fact we have a natural hostility to submitting to him, is actually the best thing for us. As we read in some of the verses from Genesis chapter 1, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock all over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created a man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree that is seed in it is its fruit. You shall have them for food. Now just for a little side note, that's the one thing I don't like about Genesis chapter 1. In this so-called perfect idealistic creation, they're all just eating veggies. Where's the meat? So if you ever want a positive spin on why sin's good, the next time you're eating a steak you can say, praise God that sin exists. But what we see is that when God created mankind, he created them in the image of God. He gave them a special position in that created order. But not just the fact that they are created in his image, but it says he has given them the role to rule over the creation under God. Now that's a significant point. Like as you read through the rest of the Bible, you see there are times when God appoints people to be his representatives over people Uh, within this world. God's still the ultimate ruler. The fact that God has appointed them to rule over the creation doesn't mean that they're free to do whatever they like. Like you get to Genesis 2, 17, God's pretty clear. He says, this tree, if you eat from it, you will surely die. God's the ultimate ruler. He's the one calling the shots. 
but they have that unique blessing of being made in the image of God and they're given everything they need for their enjoyment. This was the model of the kingdom. It was pretty good. You know what? The future one, when we get to the final session, is even better. But that ideal only lasted as long as that kingdom model lasted. As long as there was God's in relationship with his people and his place, under his rule and his blessing, everything was perfect, it was sweet. time everything turned sour was when Adam and Eve decided, I don't need him telling me what to do. I can, I can be my own rule. They, they basically want to overthrow God as the ruler and say, I'm going to rule my life, I'm going to call the shots, I know what's best. And they went from a position of being in perfect relationship with God perfect relationship with one another, perfect relation to the creation. And when they stepped out of that ideal relationship with God under his rule, they had a corrupted and broken relationship with God, a corrupted and broken relationship with one another. You see very quickly how they start accusing one another and making claims against one another. And they've got broken relationship with creation. They were always intended to work within the world, but now it says you'll work by the sweat of your brow. There'll be, the ground will be cursed, there'll be weeds and all these things. And they are banished from the garden, banished from the presence of God, and banished from the place where the tree of life was. Now, this had huge repercussions. Them taking from that tree wasn't just because God was particular about that fruit. It was an act of rebellion against God as the rightful king. It was saying, I'm going to rule my own life you don't owe me, I don't owe you anything, I'm doing things my own way. And funnily enough, when we see this picture of they kicked out of the garden, away from the tree of life, there's a thing put around so they can't get in there, then when you get to, to Revelation 2.7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there's almost like a parallel we begin to see when you look at Genesis and Revelation. You see some of the parallels between that initial paradise experience in Eden and what we see in the book of Revelation in the the new heavens and the new earth. So in the opening chapters from the Bible, we see God's people in his place under his rule. Turn from that to not being his people, not in his place, and not under his rule and enjoying the blessings of being under that. But don't you remember the words of Genesis 2.17? said, Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. Did they die? Did God just wipe them out like that? No, he didn't. Was, they, was there a spiritual death, a disconnection from God? Yes. Will they, will they physically die? Yes, they will, but was it immediate? No, it was not. For God to be a good and loving God, he must punish rebellion against him. If he is the rightful ruler of all things, he's not going to stand stand by while people decide to take that rule for themselves. You try and do that in any country. Just try and overthrow the ruler of that country and see how well it goes. Even in a casual, relaxed place like Australia, if I just just got to bolt into Parliament House and kick old Mel out and say, I'm going to do it, even Australia's going to have a big uproar over that. Sure, it happens in the party rooms behind each other's back, but for an individual just to go in there, God must punish. He must react. 
But while there is judgment, while there is consequences, the fact that they don't die straight away, there is also grace. Now, if God gave us exactly what we deserved the moment we deserved it, this would be an empty building. Actually, the building wouldn't have got built because no one would have been here to build it. And we see even after the the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the very first gospel promise. The one of the seed of the woman will crush and reverse the work of Satan the serpent. Jesus was always at the forefront of the plan of God. It wasn't a plan B, it starts to come out in the Gospels. Genesis chapter 3, the offspring of the woman who would crush and reverse the work of the fall of man that happened there in the Garden of Eden. And we'll see how that plays out over the coming weeks. But firstly, we're just going to have a very, very quick overview of how that all works together. We've got the original model that we've just looked at. That God's kingdom was, was seen in the beginning, that he was the rightful ruler. He's the ruler over a people who were there in his place and being under his rule was the place of blessing. They destroyed, they broke that. God in his grace didn't kill them on the spot. You move through to Genesis chapter 12 and you see how God begins to make promises to Abraham and to his offspring. We see promises that, that speak about a people and a place and God dwelling with them, that God hasn't given up on his creation. He hasn't given up on the idea of having a, a people for himself. We saw as we've gone through the, the book of Exodus at the end of last year, how God has established a law, a way to which to rule amongst his people and for the blessing of his people. Moves on, you get to a time where you have the monarchy, where you have the kings, who, like Adam and Eve, are appointed and given that role to to be God's representatives under God. Then you get to the prophets who start to to speak of a forthcoming anointed king, one who'd be an everlasting king, one who is coming, one who's to be looked for, who would sit on the throne of David forever. And then as Jesus Christ comes on the scene, the king comes. And as he announced the kingdom... In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, The time is fulfilled. The time has come. The kingdom is now at hand as the kingdom and the king has come. And as we await for the perfected kingdom when all of the things that we saw in part back in, back in the garden, this kingdom of God, or the Bible even speaks of the gospel, as the gospel of the kingdom of God is to be proclaimed. This is what we were created to be in a relationship with God. And in between his first coming and the establishment of that kingdom and the second coming to the, the final perfection of that kingdom, We have a responsibility to proclaim that kingdom, to invite people into that kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we'll look at the the perfected kingdom when it comes. It's a time when God's people, that is all who are saved at all time, are living in his presence, in his place, enjoying his rule and blessing. In Revelation, it describes it like this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And that's the journey that we'll be looking at over the next five weeks. Now, as we go through the Bible, it's not a collection of unrelated writings. I hope as we go through this thing that we'll see how it all fits together, how God actually has a controlled plan from beginning to end. And we start to see how these little steps of progress along the way, how they actually fulfill that kingdom plan and God's plan of redemption. As we see kingdom as an overarching theme, we'll also see the centrality of Jesus Christ. Often you'll hear someone say, I'm just a New Testament Christian. You know, the idea that I'm a, I'm a Christian, therefore the only book part of the Bible I read is the New Testament. The thing is, you can't understand the New Testament without the background of the Old Testament. I know Vaughan Roberts usually, in his book, gives the example of like a murder mystery book. You rip it in two, you've got one person's got an answer about how they did it and what room with a candlestick and, and who it was, and then the first bit's got the, all the intrigue. Without the two, they don't fit together. And the same could be said between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can't understand the New Testament without the background of the Old Testament, but at the same could be said opposite. You cannot understand the Old Testament rightly without seeing how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. As we speak of Jesus being the key to understanding the Scriptures, we see how Jesus relates to the fulfilment of Old Testament in a couple of these expressions here. Firstly, in 2 Corinthians 1, chapters, verses 19 to 20, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. So if we want to understand the promises of God, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says all of the promises of God find their yes, find their amen in Jesus Christ. Likewise, as Jesus was interacting with some Pharisees, was taking great pride in their, their knowledge of the Scriptures, and he said to them, You search the Scriptures because you think in that you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There's lots of other places we could go and come to those same conclusions. The New Testament tells us that the Old Testament by itself is incomplete. And Jesus comes to be the fulfilment of, of all of the hopes, all of the types, all of the promises of the Old Testament. And as we go through this over the next five weeks, my prayer is that God would use this series to help us understand our Bibles better. That God would use us to help us to see how these things fit together. But more than that, that we would see front and centre Jesus Christ. That we would see how all of these things point to him. But at the same time that we would see that However chaotic our life seems, we are part of a big plan. There is part of God's big plan of redemption. There is a, something set in motion even before the creation of the world that will come to its full and perfect completion when Jesus returns. We can know that as our certainty. That's not just something we might hope for, that it may one day happen. As Job precisely says, 
I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So that was kind of uh, more than more of an introduction to the series. Uh, as we look at, we'll unpack these things a little bit more over the next five weeks. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who reveals himself. You are not a God who uh, remains distant or disinterested in your people. God, we thank you that you are a graceful God. Uh, we thank you that as we see through the, your big plan of redemption, your, um, we see the ongoing failure of a people, yet we see your, your patience, your grace and your plan of redemption even amidst all of our failure and rebellion against you. Lord, help us to see the joy of being under your rule. We thank you that everything that you have given for us is for our good, even when our flesh might feel like it's the last thing we want. And Lord, we pray as we um, look through this series that you would uh, help us to see Jesus more clearly, to understand your word and your will and your purpose for us, but also too to know the certainty of the hope that we have for our future. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.